on the 15th of November this year, an Argentinian submarine disappeared with 14 crew members on board. It is reported that the captain, in contacting those who are responsible for the Navy, the Argentinian Navy, he told them that water had entered the snorkel located somewhere on that vertical piece that allows the submarine, while it is underwater, to take in air. Water had come through this snorkel and had damaged one of the batteries of the submarine. It was later said that an explosion was detected in the area where the submarine was last thought to be. It is feared that all 44 crew members are now dead. One wonders what would it be if the circumstances were different? What if the submarine was detected and detected early? What if a salvage operation was mounted, massive cables lowered to the bottom of the sea? and the submarine was hoisted. We will be celebrating today a rescue, a rescue of mammoth proportion. We would view that as salvation. You see, salvation is a real rescue, and it is a rescue from imminent danger. You and I who are Christians have come to know a real salvation. Not an attempted salvation, but a real deliverance. A deliverance from deadly enemies, especially Satan and sin and eternal separation from God hell itself. The Apostle Paul speaks to the salvation. Here in 2 Timothy chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is imprisoned. This is not the first occasion that he has been imprisoned. It was part and parcel of his apostolic calling to suffer for the gospel. But this is his final imprisonment. After this, he will be executed in Rome. His, his head will be chopped off his body. He will die for his faith. And he writes this second epistle to Timothy, a very personal epistle. Do you notice how he greets him in verse 2 of chapter 1? To Timothy, a beloved son. He is the son of Paul in the gospel. But through the ministry of Paul, he was converted. Paul speaks personally. He speaks of his family. He talks about his grandmother and his mother, whom Paul knows. He knows, he knows that they are genuine believers with genuine faith. Now Paul writes to him 
He's going to encourage him to come quickly, to bring with him the parchment. Paul senses that his time on earth was drawing to an end. And he writes this brief epistle to Timothy. First of all, in the first five verses, there is thanksgiving for the faith that Timothy has exhibited. It is God's work. The faith in Timothy is a sign of God's work. That is why he says in verse 3, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day greatly desiring to see you being mindful of your tears that I may be filled with joy. He reminds him, he prays, he gives thanks to God. I thank God. He, Timothy possesses a faith. He says he thanks God when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you. Why is he thanking God for the faith in him? It is because he understands that the faith that Timothy exhibited is a faith given to him by God. Faith is God's gift. And what is he saying? In other words, I'm thanking God that you are a genuine believer because God has given you the gift of faith. In the next section, verses 6 to 14, having thank, given thanks to God for the faith of Timothy, he implores him, he calls him to be faithful to the gospel message. And following the call to faithfulness to the gospel message in verses 6 to 14, he rounds off this first chapter by contrasting two unfaithful men to Onesiphorus, who was a faithful man. In telling him to be faithful to the gospel, he says to them, to Timothy, don't be like Phygelius and Hermogenes, who are apostate, who are faithless. But be like Onesiphorus, who has stood with me in the gospel. You see that in that contrast in verses 15 to 18. But what I want to do is to really look at that middle section, that verse 6 to 14. And not even on that section itself entirely, but particularly on verses 9 and 10. Because as I mentioned to you, verses 5 to 14 or, or consists of a call, or verses 6 to 14, consists of a call to faithfulness. And within this section where he's calling him to be faithful, we see in verse 9, verse 8, he says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. This is at the heart of the call to being faithful. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. Here, in verses 9 and 10, we have a summary of the gospel. You can see that in this few verses, Paul is concerned with the gospel. You find the term gospel used in verse 8. Share with me in the suffering of the gospel. And in verse 10, but now 
has been revealed by the appearance of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought to life and immortality to light through the gospel. Essentially then, he's telling him to endure hardship for the gospel. And he will define the gospel as essentially salvation in Christ. I want us to consider then this matter of salvation in Jesus Christ as the Apostle Paul lays out for us. There are a few things that we may say regarding Paul's summary statement of salvation. I want to focus nevertheless on these few pertinent facts. First, the Apostle Paul teaches us that God is the one who freely initiates salvation. This is not something new. You've heard it over and over. But part of our task is not only to bring new things of the scripture, but to remind us of the old things. And the writer begins, Paul reminds Timothy in telling him to stand with him and to be a suffering for the gospel, this gospel of salvation, he reminds him that the salvation that he proclaims is a salvation that has its initiative in God. God is the one who freely initiates salvation. He tells him, having told him that he is to share in suffering for the gospel, according to the power of God, he makes it clear that his ability to endure suffering for the gospel is through the power of God. It's not saying, you know, just resolves to tough it out. Get down in the trenches with me and fight away. Be a man and slug away in the gospel. Don't, don't care about what happens to you. Just keep going. This wasn't a pep talk. He's saying to endure because it is God that endurance is by the power of God. And having spoken about God, he says this in verse 9, who has saved us. He defines salvation as the initiative of God. God is the one who freely initiates salvation. And he describes God's salvation. He says, he has saved us. Two participles. He has saved us and called us. Throughout the Old Testament, God is revealed as the savior of his people. His saving act, the greatest saving act of the Old Testament is seen as the deliverance of his people out of Egypt. Jeremiah will remind us that God saved his people out of Babylon. And Isaiah will speak in chapter 43 of God who alone is the savior of his people. The writer then denotes God as savior. He has saved us. And this salvation, especially when we think of zotzo, the term to, to save in the pastoral epistles, it denotes a rescue from sin, from guilt, from slavery, from alienation, from divine wrath. But it is also not merely a rescue from, but it is a salvation too, to a state of righteousness, of freedom, of fellowship, and of everlasting life. The writer makes it clear that God initiates his salvation in the past. He has saved us. You see, the past salvation is viewed then as a work of the past. He has saved us. The same 
description of salvation as a past event is revealed in chapter 3, where the writer makes it clear that God has saved us in the past. In, in Titus 3 and verse 5, where he tells, when the, he says, when the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards men appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Salvation must be seen as first and foremost as a work of the past. It is also, and will be made clear, a work of the future. It has a present, it has a past and a present and a future aspect. Here, he says it is God's work and it is God's past work. It is God's initiative. He has saved us. Now, he tells us that God has saved us in a particular manner. He says, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share with me the sufferings of the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us. And he says, God has saved us in this particular way and called us. You see, the, the apostle wants us to know that salvation is God's initiative. It's God's idea. But it is also by God's power. He says, God has saved us in this particular manner that he has issued a personal call to us. Nobody becomes a Christian unless the Lord calls him. And what the Apostle Paul is speaking about here in this calling mustn't be seen not merely in terms of the external call. We, we think of the calling of God as external and internal. There's a call that comes from God in the preaching of the gospel. That men are to repent and to believe. We call it the general call. But the call that they have received is not merely the general call which is necessary but the internal call that is the application of the saving work of the Spirit to the heart. In a sense, there's a sense in which then calling and regeneration are to be seen as synonymous, merely looking at the same coin from two different angles or from looking at, this, at, at two different sides of one coin. They're called. It's a powerful summons. It is a summon from God which is infused with life. It is a call that quickens the dead in the more natural human sense. You remember the call of the Lord Jesus Christ who comes to the tomb of Lazarus and says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus did. We, we, we really, unless the, only, only the Lord is working in us, can we ever go? You know, it would be a wonderful thing, you know, if, if when our relatives were dead, all we've got to do is to go to the grave and say, now, now dear, please get up. And, 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 you know, our wives spring back to life, or our husbands spring back to life, or our children and relatives and friends. You see, we can speak words. But the word, the call that comes from God to us, is not a mere word, it is a word that is attended by the power of God. When Jesus says, come forth, that word was infused with divine power. 
And the Lord has issued a call to us, a personal call, a calling of our name. At a particular time, we are called into salvation. And so the writer says, this is God's work. It is his idea, and it is by his powerful calling, a calling addressed to our hearts, that we have been saved. He says, we are saved, he has saved us and called us. And called us. The Testament speaks much of the calling. He says that this calling of God is a calling which is a holy calling. Notice. He says, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Well, what does that expression holy calling mean? It is a holy calling because it comes from the holy God. But it is a holy calling because it is a calling to a holiness of life. The Apostle Paul says much about divine calling. He tells us we are called to different purposes. He says we are called into fellowship with Christ. We are called to the peace of Christ. We are called to eternal life. We are called to the prize of the high calling. We are called out of darkness into his marvelous light, according to 1 Peter 2.9. But here, he emphasizes one aspect of our calling. We are called with a holy calling. We are called to live a life that is separated. That's what the word means, to be separated. We have been called then from a state of sinfulness to a state of holiness, separation, and devotion to God. And this, you see, is explained in different ways. For example, when the writer says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2 uh, that God has called us to be saints. Saints. Not, not decorations in stained glass windows. Saints. Real people. Do you know there are saints on earth? Yes. You're a Christian. You're a saint. You don't like get up in the morning and look at the mirror and say, you know, I'm a saint. You probably, probably think, no, that's too ostentatious. That's too proud to go around calling myself a saint. You know, the Bible calls you a saint. And what I find amazing, you know, the Corinthian believers were called saints. They were the most unsaintly, if you were to think of them in terms of their sinfulness. But the Bible calls them saints. Because it simply means that they are separated unto God. They are devoted to God. They're called to a life of holiness. Paul tells the Thessalonians, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. So God does not just call believers to be saved. He calls them to be saved from sin. And he calls them to a life of holiness. The scriptures then here remind us regarding this summer statement of salvation. That salvation is by God's initiative. It is God who initiates salvation. And the salvation that he gives is by his powerful call, a call into a life of holiness. But there is a second idea that is to be found. And it is that the writer points out that the salvation that God provides, not only is it his initiative, but it is not a response to human work. 
who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. This salvation, this plan of God for our lives, this deliverance is not according to our works. In fact, he states it negatively and then positively. First, not according to our works. Throughout the Pauline epistles, whether it be the epistle to the Romans or the epistles to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul has taken great pains to teach that we are not saved by our works, not according to our works. And one of the reasons why you, you find this emphasis, not according to your works, that salvation is not a response to human effort. It is precisely because the Jews of Paul's day had come to believe that by their good works, they could earn salvation. Paul will tell the Romans in chapter 10 that the Jews had gone about establishing their own righteousness. They had rejected the righteousness that God gives as a gift, seeking to establish their own righteousness. And he says, salvation is by God's initiative. And God's initiative was not spurred because of human merit. He rules out human effort as a factor. What, this is an amazing thought. It's one I'm sure you're all familiar with. God did not set out to save cute, wonderful people. God was not so impressed with us that he thought, I, I just can't do without you. By every measure, God should have done without us because we are unworthy sinners. Not by our works. This is an amazing statement. God did not love us because we were lovely. It is by his grace. See, now he tells us why we are saved. He says, not negatively, according to our works. Then why are we saved? But according to his own purpose and grace. I have heard on many occasions as Christians have wondered, why did God love me? There's a question that is asked often, why did God love me? And the only true answer to that is, because he chose to love you. Because he chose to love you. Let that sink in for a moment. You were known to him. Not according to your works. But according to his own purpose. Because God planned to. God chose to freely. Love you. You are saved, not according to your works, but according to his own purpose and grace. We aren't to see these two things as separate. We could say, according to his own gracious purpose. Because in grace, he had set his affection on you. This theme, you see, is repeated over and over in the scriptures. What did God say to Israel in Deuteronomy? I did not choose you because you were more numerous than the other nations. 
In fact, you were the smallest of people. But I set my affection upon you because I loved you. In other words, God says, I loved you because I chose to love you. You need to know that first and foremost, love is a choice. So many times you come to me, I don't love my, I don't love my husband, or I don't love my wife. And I say, well, what, what do you mean? Yeah, I just can't stand them. I'd rather just go away. And I said, you're describing a feeling. You're describing a feeling. But where is your will in all of this? Because it is a choice. And God chose to love us when we were unlovely and unworthy. Our salvation then belongs to God as his initiative. And it is a salvation rooted in the character and in the grace of God. Not according to our works, but contrastively, according to his own purpose and grace. If God loved us when we were unlovely, when we were still in our mother's blood as the picture given to us in Ezekiel, when we were still unwashed, what about now? When his blood has cleansed us, our Savior's blood has cleansed us, we are his own. But there's a third thought that I want you to ponder briefly. God is the one who saved us by his own initiative. He saved us not because of our works, but because of his, his purpose and grace. We, we learned thirdly regarding the salvation. But the saving grace of God finds concrete expression in history and particularly in the person of Christ. Read again verses 9 and 10. Who has saved us? And call us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. And he says, this grace was given to us, that is, this saving grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. But has now been revealed by the appearing, the epiphany of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What is he saying then? He's saying that God's saving purpose to us is actualized and effected in and through Jesus Christ. That at the heart of our salvation stands the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in Christ God's saving grace has come to fruition, to, to light. He says that God saved us. His saving grace has been given to us in Christ before time began. Our salvation is in Christ. And God has given to us saving grace in Christ before time. In other words, that God planned to save us in Christ before time. Of course, this points to the pre-existence of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he says the, the, the saving grace that we have been given in Christ before time began manifested itself when Christ appeared in time in history. That Christ is the concrete then manifestation of the saving grace of God. 
This is not unlike what is said in Titus 3, 4 to 6. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards men appeared, not by works of righteousness we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing by, of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured on us abundantly through Jesus Christ. It is in Christ that salvation has come. It is Christ who has brought salvation in his incarnation, in his life, and particularly in his death. He has saved us, he says. But he has saved us by giving us grace in Jesus Christ in eternity. And in time, the one to whom we were given, that is Christ, he was given to us to be our Savior. He in time appeared. He came into this world as a real human body with a real soul, a real man to die for real people. And the writer says, it is in Christ our salvation is to be seen. He says, the grace given has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior. You will notice that in the pastoral epistles, God is called Savior. But he says we have been saved by our Savior, the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ is Savior. And he's Savior precisely because he has died for our sins. He saved us by his life because he lived a perfect life. He kept all of God's laws. He could say that Satan has nothing in me. I always do the will of my father. He was sinless. He was perfect. He was spotless. We need the active righteousness of Christ. You, you need to know that you are saved by the life of Christ. But you're not saved only by the life of Christ. You're saved by his death. Because whereas his life produce, provides the active righteousness we need. In his death we have his passive righteousness. That which removes our sins. Our salvation has come to fruition. To materialization in the fact that Jesus Christ has come as a savior. He has shouldered our burden of sin. He has, as Isaiah said, lifted them up. And he carried them away to the cross. He suffered there the shame, the jeering, the ridicule, and the awful agony of the cross. And he would not come down even though they said to him, You are the Son of God, come down and we'll believe in you. But our Lord Jesus Christ bore our sins. He knew the harrowing of the soul, the dark night of the soul. He descended into the nadir, into hell itself. Because he experienced separation from God. He saved us by his death. By paying the whole price. And the writer not only describes salvation as that which is affected through Jesus Christ. But he describes the effect of a salvation that Christ has accomplished. He says, 
who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our own works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the time began, but has now been revealed. Saving grace has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And what has he done? What's the effect of his salvation? He says, who has abolished death? And brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. What did Christ do? He abolished death. By dying on the cross, he overpowered and overcame death. That's the first thing he did. We read, In so much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who are the power of death, that is the devil, and release us who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The apostle Paul does not mean, when he says abolish death, does not mean that believers do not die. Clearly, our existence in this world proves we have living proof that there is death. We live in a world where death not only comes to unbelievers, but to believers. To abolish death means that he abolishes the fear of death. He has overcome him who has the power of death, that is Satan. It means, secondly, that he has abolished the sting of death. So that we can say, Oh, death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? For the believer, death does not separate us from God. Death is merely an entrance into the presence of God. He has abolished death. In principle now, but in eternity, it will be final, a final abolishment, an end of death. And that is why the writer John could say in Revelation 20, at the end of time, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. That one day, death itself will be abolished. So he has abolished death, removed, defanged it, taken away the sting of death. But the second effect of the work of Christ is that he has brought life and immortality to light in the gospel, in the good news of the gospel. We now know that because of Christ's salvation, we have life and immortality. I, do, I think this should be seen as an endeavor. We shouldn't see life and immortality as two different things. It's, it's two ways of saying the same thing. He's simply saying that Christ has not only abolished death, but he has brought us everlasting life. He has brought us immortality. This is a characteristic of God. God is immortal. God is imperishable. And here then there is a, an allusion to the new creation, to the new body. We will be given new, immortal, imperishable bodies like the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting, you know, Christ has come and by his death on the cross he has brought us life. Notice how the writer begins. This epistle, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God according to the promise of life. 
which is in Christ Jesus. It is in Christ's death that we have received life. Our Lord Jesus could say, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Our Lord Jesus Christ has died and delivered us from the sting of death and has given us life and immortality. After this, is life forevermore. We have already entered into eternal life. We have eternal life as a gift of God, even now. But we await the consummation of that life. When we see him, we will share in God's immortal life. Salvation is God's initiative. It is not, secondly, based upon our works, but upon, upon God's purpose and grace. And salvation is effected through Christ who has come and who has abolished death and brought us life and immortality. These truths remind us of a few things, and I want to stress four briefly. First of all, when we read a text like this, we must recognize that salvation is first and foremost theological. Salvation is always about God and what God has done. It is God who has acted to save us. That if God did not take the initiative to save us, nobody would be saved. We'll be perpetually running away from God. And God has saved us because of his purpose, because of his grace. It was not a last-ditch effort, but it was his plan from eternity. And it should remind you that you are important to him. That long before your mother or father thought of you, you were in the mind of God. And in eternity past, he has already made all provisions for your life and for your godliness. That you have been on the heart of God from eternity. That you have been known to him from eternity. Known to God are all his works from eternity. And there is nothing in this life that may affect you that God has not control over because he has planned every aspect and step of your life and he will see you through. Salvation is God's work. And because it is God's work, it must be accomplished. We get to a place at times when we question. And I'm not saying that questioning ourselves is not at times vital, useful. But sometimes we are concerned. Will we make it in? Will we be lost? But this is God's work. It was not our doing. It is God's doing. And because it is God who begins the good work, it is he who will complete it. It is God's work. Salvation must be seen as theological. And therefore we have to look to him. We have to rejoice in him. We have to trust in him. It comes from God. But salvation is for God. We have been saved, like Israel, to be a blessing. We read that in Zechariah chapter 8, verse 13. Israel was saved to be a blessing. But Israel was also saved to be holy. 
And we have been saved to be a blessing to others, but we have been saved to be holy. In other words, we have been saved to be like God. You belong to the family. You know, there are some children who are in a family and you can't really detect that they resemble their parents. That's okay. They may resemble their grandparents or great-grandparents. That's fine. But Christians don't have any grandparents. We don't have any spiritual grandparent. We only have a father. And we must be like him. He's holy. We must be holy. He has saved us. That we may be holy. That we may live differently. He has saved us. And in saving us, he has given us the power to live godly in this present evil age. We have been saved by God and saved for God. And salvation then does not then consist merely of deliverance from sin. But salvation provides power to live in an entirely different way. But it also needs to be borne in mind that if salvation is theological, it's about what God has done. I'm going to depend upon him. We need to recognize that salvation is secondly Christological. God has saved us, but he has saved us in and through the person of Christ. It is Christ alone who saves. And if we are to know the salvation that Christ gives, we must receive it by faith. We are saved, but we are saved in and through Christ. But only those who rely upon Christ by faith know salvation. I wonder if you're here this evening, if you are converted, if you are saved, if you've been delivered from your sins and from the wrath of God. The only way to be saved is to look to Christ, is to trust in Jesus Christ. But salvation, thirdly, must not only be seen as Christological, it is eschatological. Yes, Paul can speak of salvation in the past. God saved us. But Paul sees salvation as yet future. It is said, you know, in ancient times, that in the Greco-Roman world, there were people who were afraid of two things. They were afraid of the gods. And they were afraid of death. And so a philosopher like Epicurus, in trying to encourage people not to fear the gods and to fear death. Epicurus says, don't, don't, be, don't be afraid of the gods. The gods are not really concerned about us. They're too busy doing their own things. And they don't, by the way, they don't interfere. They don't enter into our lives. They don't enter into this world. They don't enter into this life. So you don't have to be afraid of the gods. And he says, as far as death is concerned, don't be afraid of death. Because when you die, that's the end. You experience nothingness. Now, I don't know anybody took any kind of joy out of that. But see, the gospel teaches us that God does enter into our environment. And that God does deliver us. And that what he gives us is not nothingness. But he gives us life and immortality. He gives us an existence. And by the way, when the writer speaks of life and immortality, he's speaking of that life which is to come. It's not just endless life. Life and immortality speaks of a quality of life. A sharing into God's life. And when the Bible speaks of that, it uses 
metaphors and images like the messianic banquet to show you it's a life of joy. It's a life of love. There are people who think, you know, but you know, living forever with God, that's, kind of, that, that's not going to be very thrilling. Just living on and on and on. It's a life of love. It's a life of love. Do, do you find love boring? Well, if you are married and you get tired of one another, and oh boy, you know, that, that may be dreadful if there's no love in a marriage. But when you are in a marriage and you're growing in love, you are appreciating your partner more and more. You want to go on vacations with them. You want them to retire because you want to spend time. You know, like some of those people thinking, oh, dear, my husband's going to retire next year. What am I going to do? You're saying, can't you quit early? Can't you come home early? Because you're growing in love with the years. And heaven is a world of love. It's knowing the love of God and expressing love to God. It's drinking deeply from the fountain of divine love. It's to be able to say, Jesus loves me and I love him. It's to enter a world of love. That's life immortal. A quality of love. Not just endless life. It's good to be able to be perfectly healthy for the rest of eternity. If 25 is the best we can be as human beings, you're going to be 25 physically for eternity. No aches or pains. No baldness. No growing round. Perfect specimen. That's great. But to be able to see the face of God, to be able to, to have the curtain removed from our eyes. Now we see dimly as through a glass, but then face to face. I don't know if there's anybody who can ever communicate what it is to see God and live. This passage reminds us that salvation is also missiological. That the salvation which Christ brings calls us to be ambassadors of the gospel. That we are not to be ashamed of Jesus Christ. But to know that by becoming a Christian we are called to witness. And the witness we bear for Christ will bring suffering. The world hates the only medication that can cure it. But Christ is worth suffering for. Because only in him is life to be found. So you are called then to be a witness, to tell men that God is calling men, be reconciled to God. God is reconciling the world to himself and he calls you to be reconciled to him. You are to tell men to turn from sin and turn and trust in Jesus Christ. And you are to know that this work of the gospel, to persevere in it, you need God's strength. You are to know that it, that it is God who causes his gospel to succeed. You are to preach and to witness and to be a man. You are not called to go and argue with men. We have uh, many people who like arguing. You are called to witness. In other words, you are called to declare Christ. And when they throw up evolution before you, you are to proclaim God as creator. And when they tell you that this is it, you're to tell them there's a life to come. And when they say there is no hope, you're to say there's hope in Jesus Christ who died and rose again. You're to proclaim the gospel. 
and you're to trust the power of God to preserve you in faith and to trust the, the power of God to protect, to defend his gospel and to bring gospel success. May God help you to love this gospel, to cherish it and to proclaim it for Christ's sake. Amen.